Welcome back to the Find the Outside, the podcast. We are here today and it's already starting off really well um, with Meg Buzzy and Brandon Dubay from a company called The Present of Work. So Meg and Brandon are a team of co-founders of The Present of Work and Tim and I wanted to talk with them for any number of reasons. One is that Meg is an old friend and colleague and I think she's awesome. The other is that Brandon does work I don't even understand outside of The Present of Work, but they are coming together as a cross-racial cross-gender team doing change work. And so we wanted to bring them together today and talk with them about what they're up to. So join us. Uh, let's dive right in. It's kind of cool because it's like the present meets the outside. Ooh. I mean, like what happens when, what happens when the now meets nature? Oh, you know. Okay. That's our next initiative. What do you think? Boom. Now meets nature. The now and the nature. <laughs> now in nature. There. We, now you're going somewhere. I'm liking this. Yes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Friends, you heard it here. This is where it started. Natural Now. That's going to be the new, that's the next generation podcast. I'm in. It's outside. That's great. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, maybe we could, I mean, it sounds silly, but I would love to hear about the present of work and kind of how you came even to that name, because I found that just really extraordinary as we were talking with the two of you. What is the present of work? I wanted to know about that, why that name, what that means, how you came together. Just kind of give us a little bit of background. Yeah, like I can go first and then I'd love to toss it over to Meg. I think the term, you know, kind of is in some ways just trying to you know, poke fun at the future of work, you know, which seems to often be this nebulous and chaotic topic. And we kind of wanted to to bring it home, to bring it more into something that people could understand. And a lot of times, you know, I've kind of struggled, you know, being, being like a futurist or in like a, a world where, you know, like everybody's a futurist, you know, trying to find the next big thing. I've always struggled with, you know, like, well, what are, what are we talking about with like our current needs, not kind of what where things will be, you know, like I'm not really concerned about a AI CEO, you know, like t talk to me about, you know, like the current conditions of an organization and what gifts do people need to receive uh, or give, you know, to kind of help an emerging future arise. And I think the you know last thing I'll say before I, I'd love to let Meg riff is when we you know kind of met each other over the pandemic, the places that we were meeting were at these like digital cross sections that like I found super powerful in, into like how we're codifying the future. I was really inspired when I met Meg to use conversations and discourse as a way to uh, actually go deeper with people, people I already knew and people I hadn't met before. So it's, it's always been, you know, kind of applying what we know uh, right now to maybe what will be needed. So over to you, Meg. Great. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah. I think there was a something early on that that Brandon said to me that was like, how can we create a future if we haven't reckoned with the present? So how can we create a future for the office? And we don't even know what that looks like now. There's there's return to work, there's hybrid work, there's remote work. But all of it, like like Brandon said, is this sort of like amorphous, cloudy, 
understanding of what the future may look like, you know, and it preys on people's fears like robots will take over work or it'll be even more codified than it was before or we'll be chained to our desks. And yet I wasn't sensing a lot of generative dialogue, again, pre-pandemic, about the present circumstances of work. And people spend more time at work, certainly, again, prior to the pandemic, spent more time at the office than they even did with their families. I mean, I think this is a reality for a lot of people. They're spending enormous amounts of their life (laughs) in work, but bringing them into a sense of what is present in them, what is present in their work environment, and what is possible, what else is possible in the present that might point towards something we want to continue or build on. Hmm. I'm just back from, uh, I did some work in uh, Colorado a couple of weeks ago and, uh, and it was around kind of urban forestry. And so they were like leading climate scientists there and just looking at the urban canopy, climate mitigation, also heat equity. And what kind of struck me there was like how much thirst there was for like hope and optimism, like, like in the, fe- like I mean, the future can be terrifying when we start looking at the impacts of issues like climate change, you know, but the present can also, it's 24 degrees in Canada in November today. Yeah. It's warmer where you are today than it is where I am in Southern California. That is weird. In fact, it's 30 degrees warmer where you are. I just love to know what you discover about like kind of like hope or optimism or like when people sink into the present in your work, like what do they discover that gives them the kind of intrinsic motivation to take responsibility for whatever it is they're facing, whether it's within their family or their team or their organization or society at large. But like, what do people discover when they don't get overexcited about the future and really (laughs) come, really come here? Yeah. Well, I I guess one of the things that pops into my head just immediately is that people, when they're allowed to be present or they're given the space to, to be present for a moment in their work to kind of sense into how they really feel, you know, if they're, if they're allowed to take a pause, if we're allowed to offer them some kind of a, a pause, I think one of the things they discover is what is still alive to them. What is alive to them now? What do they really want? I think there's a disconnect between what people perform at work and what they actually need and want. So one of the things that presencing as a a sort of umbrella term offers people at work is, is the ability to sense into what is most important to them right now. And I think the noise of the world has made that a difficult question to answer sometimes. What would you add to that, Brandon? I really like that kind of like summarization of the noise of the world. Like when when people show up in a place of work, you know, they're not showing up uh, isolated. They're showing up with all the relationships uh, that kind of hold them in their perspective of life. And, you know, like we, we treat work as maybe this, an invisible fortress uh, where there's nothing that can kind of affect it, but like everything's affecting it. And in ways that we 
don't often see. And I, I think it is through those moments of pause and reflection that like we're able to like calm these tumultuous waves of our lives and, and kind of generate ways to focus and to shift the conversation in, in a way that, you know, needs to to happen in order for like a different outcome to happen. I, I think like the repression, you know, kind of that has occurred in, in the general culture of work in the, in the last few decades has, has kind of been a, a, a people divorcing themselves from reality, uh, from what they do uh, and who they are, which which kind of just leads to these fissures in our, our personalities and, and how we show up and how we engage with one another. So what becomes possible when we embrace all of that? What happens when we are open to finding the, the things that we're you know, almost scared to look at, like what happens when we surface these things and as part of our, you know, daily conversations. And as part of that integration, because I think we are just so, like, as Brandon was saying in the last few decades, so compartmentalized about this is my personal life. This is my work life. This is a personal part of me. This is a professional part of me. When in reality, we're bringing all that stuff in every day anyway. We're just pretending that it's separate. And so what's possible when we can dissolve that ground a little bit so that people can pause and look holistically across their life and say, yeah, what what do I need? Brittany said some really powerful words. You said they divorce themselves from reality and these fissures, right? You know, in our personalities or how we're bringing ourselves to work. And Meg, you said, you know, like this kind of like they get a holistic sense, right, of, of what's happening for them. And I'm really curious in this push for urgency that is everywhere. I mean, we don't work one place where people don't feel overwhelmed you know, by what's in front of them. And so I'm curious how you begin to make the case to people to rise up that need to not just uh, pause, but to actually be with reality, right? If we've divorced ourselves from reality, and there's a lot that's really scary right now too, like how do you begin to build appetite for the pause, for the being with reality, for the closing those fissures, for the holisticness? How do you, how do you, how do you help people build that appetite? Yeah, so I think part of it is of a refocusing on the relational, which means building trust and resilience and the ability, you know, practicing the ability to be vulnerable with the people around you at work and and for all of them to have that same opportunity. Mm. So I think one piece is around creating the social fabric at work so that people feel okay to take a pause. Because sometimes they don't even feel like they have permission to take that five-minute pause. So I, I, one of the things our group tries to do is actually dig into and create rhythms around social relationships on these teams so that they can really see what each other's look, see each other. So may, maybe the one person can't get this holistic view of themselves, but we can help that team become a mirror for each other. Mm. Mm. That's great. Yeah, I think it's it's in those spaces where we can almost practice and play with each other that you know we start to adapt and evolve our our patterns of communication and being with one another because ultimately like you know we're we're here on this planet practicing being. And I think like it's it's really easy to to get removed from that. You know, what I forget if it it was some famous Buddhist monk, but, you know, human beings are human doings, you know, which, which one? 
do we want to be? Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Just add one little piece onto that is that I think the practice we try, the, the gift of practice we try to give to all of our clients is practicing the how. How do we want to be in the work together? So I'll just say like, I don't even remember what year it was, maybe 2013, 2014, Tim and Tuesday, you did a uh, Beyond the Basics Art of Hosting in Ohio. Mm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. With Chris and Caitlin. Yeah. With Caitlin Frost. Yep. Yep. And I remember at the time, one of you saying, or maybe both of you said this, like, we want to be able to be in the work together despite the difference. And we want to be able to stay together in the argument and still be moving toward this goal we have together. And that has stuck with me for for years and years that the how we do things is almost more important than what we actually accomplish. And so I'm always trying when I when I am sort of intervening in a team, no matter what, because I might take a variety of different roles when I intervene with a team. I just want to give them the, the opportunity to feel what it feels like to be in a state of conflict together and to get through it. And to feel that that sense of like, oh, when we're relationally strong with one another, the outcomes are better, regardless. Yeah, it's like the the we'll say sometimes that the, the quality of relationships will impact the quality of results, right? It's actually the quality of relationships is what creates the conditions for the quality of the results. You know that kind of piece. H- how do you how do you pitch this? <laughs> like, there's all kinds of people listening who aspire. To the type of things you're talking about, I think in their workplace, in their in their communities, in their faith groups. I mean, al- almost anywhere. This does you know this need when the world feels increasingly chaotic and unpredictable and uncertain. This need to turn to each other and anchor ourselves in relationships and in you know surround ourselves with trust. I mean, the research is in, right? That grounds us. That sustains us. Like you, you don't have to look far to read about it, you know. And in the in the same breath, you know that still feels pretty radical in most organizations. That f- still feels pretty radical in most places of work or most places of action. And so, is it is it that there's like a, some bright spark within the organization who comes to the two of you and like and like is like, oi, you two, come in here and help me do this, you know? Or or are you going in and people are inviting you in to do a strategic retreat with them, and you're like, maybe you need a bit more of a circuitous route here, you know? And so I'm just intrigued like how you position this because in many ways it's countercultural right isn't it than a lot of than a lot of the organizations we find ourselves in absolutely brandon do you want to start off yeah you go first i feel like you got something juicy to say well i you know teams and organizations typically come to us when they are in crisis already there we go okay and in the year we're in right now or in the time we're in right now those problems are often burnout which results in like low productivity and staff turnover. Uh, so that could be the problem they're coming to us with, or it could be succession. That's a big one that we're getting a lot of now. People are retiring and they're like, we have a whole big young team, but we don't really understand how to prepare this new team to take over the organization. So typically it comes at points of crisis when the founders or the leaders, or maybe just one of the leaders feels like they can't go on without something radical or they have to change something about their operating system. You know, and some of them might be open now to things like coaching. I mean, in the last couple of years, there's been so much ROI 
research done on just individual and team interventions for in in coaching and work. And I think the latest, you know, it's like four or 500% return on investment for every dollar you spend uh, helping that team. You, you got to send me that piece of research. I want that piece of research. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's from it's from Harvard Business Review. We'll send you a whole, in fact, and, and for your audience, we, we're happy to share. We're, we've been collecting research on this. Oh, people would love that. We'll, because we'll post it up on the on the podcast notes. But I think that's that's a wicked piece of data to be able to point to. Love it. Yeah, so we've really been been pointing to how investing in really your team dynamics and investing in understanding your team's motivation and what they think the problems are in the organization has an enormous impact on the leadership's ability to carry out their long-range plans. So that's usually the the kind of point we tie to. We're like, if you want this larger arc to happen, then again, we need to come back to the present and have a conversation about what does work feel like right now inside the organization. And chances are, if they're talking to us, it doesn't feel as good as they know it can feel. Yeah, jo- jovially, I think we've ter- we've thrown around the term like the art and science of teaming, uh, just because it's it's you know a bit of an art and a, there is some science to it. Um, I, I I think like another thing that we found to be really powerful is uh, the idea of agency, like helping teams kind of find those ways to. Um, really become those um, decision makers in some ways uh, for themselves uh, to kind of help build the, you know, future that they want to live in. Um, And and we've found ways to really just help them practice. Um, One of my favorite activities is is something called comms dojo um, that I know Meg is, is uh, holds near and dear. Uh, but like practicing conflict, I, I think like in some ways, uh, conflict is like stress. You know, if you don't have stress, uh, you'll kind of never adapt. So if you're a runner, you know, and you're not stressing your body adequately, you'll, you'll never develop endurance. Um, but too much stress can put you on your back uh, and, and you may become injured. So, you know, Developing those uh, places of equilibrium with teams uh, and, and having them take on those uh, responsibilities over time, you know, something that we love to, to do because, you know, just being empowered to kind of view work in a new way or their work in a new way has been really inspirational. I love so much of what you just both just said. And the thing I just, I don't know why, it just came to me as you were talking, Meg, around the present of work, there's actually something that we might be trying to escape when we think about all these future scenarios, right? It's just like meditation, right? Like you bring yourself back to the present and you notice how your worry is about the future and often your depression is about the past, but you're actually not staying present to what is right now. And so just, it's a really different way to begin to think about our work of becoming present in our work being like another, a a way of not fleeing what's happening right now right? Of just like being with it, staying. So I just hadn't done it for some reason. Like I was like, oh, like my brain just went ka-chunk, right? Because often our future gazing efforts are efforts to flee. We want something different so badly, right? That we just want to forecast and get there and like kind of move out of what is right now, which like you said, is the majority of most people's day. 
in their work. And so that's really just fascinating for me. And I wanted to ask the two of you, because Brennan, you, you talked about practicing conflict. And that really struck me because I was thinking, you know, when you invite people into relationship with each other, when you invite them to have authentic conversation or to say what's really happening with them, I think that most people would say that they want it, right? Like most, nobody's going to be like, nope, nope, I'd rather stay on the surface. You know what I mean? Like I just, you know, like. Well, at least a good percentage. Right, right. Yeah. But there is something quite risky about being in those kind of dialogues. Conflict is inevitable, especially when we start working across difference, right? Especially when the differences are meaningful, when the differences around race and gender and not just how we just think differently, right? Our legacies are different. Our present right now is quite different than what we're experiencing. And of course, our projected futures are quite different. So I'd love to hear you talk about, because I think often, especially in the EDI uh, world right now, there's a lot of talk about safety and like um, some sense that some of us are more vulnerable in these conversations. And so how do you all begin to work with that? Really, that it's simply challenging to be having these authentic and real conversations across real differences that really matter right now. Yeah, yeah. So one of the scholars that Brandon and I f follow is Bio Akamalafe. Yeah, we just had him on the podcast. Yeah, we just had him on the pod, yeah. Yeah. And when we took his We Will Dance with Mountains course, one of the things he talks about a lot is staying with the trouble. Mm. And the author's name I'm not remembering is the person who coined that phrase. Donna Haraway. Donna Haraway. Thank you, Donna Haraway. And so I think there's this piece of practicing conflict that that is about staying with the trouble or being willing to stay with the discomfort a little bit and not flee, as you said. I also think there's a task for us at the present of work to make some of that pleasurable, to make some of that work as light. Can, can we hold it lightly? If it's a dojo, then no one dies at the end, you know? Right, right. That's great. And, and so could we maybe just, it's incredibly serious. And at the same time, I don't want to take it seriously. Yeah. I love it. Because we have reached some absurd levels. I mean, it, at, at work. And yeah, so it kind of feels like if we can just find the motivation to stay with the discomfort, the tiniest bit, it will yield something novel at the end because we don't typically do that. So I, I don't know. I feel like that's that's the uh, dance I'm in with the teams I serve is how can I make this fun enough for you to sit in it for a little bit? I love that, Megan. Brandon, I am going to let you talk because um, so many of these conversations, people are like, we have to be ready for these challenging conversations. We got to get ready. And I'm like, oh no, that's just not the way to approach this. Like, uh, I don't know. No one comes to me and says, Tuesday, we're going to have a challenging conversation. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Right. And I just think that there is something about imagining that actually these conversations could be pleasurable, not necessarily easy, but pleasurable and rich and meaningful and maybe even joyful, right? That is just kind of missing from the discourse right now. And so I love this idea of bringing joy or pleasure. I don't remember which one of you said at the end of a dojo, nobody dies. Like, thank you. Because we often find that these conversations on difference are so earnest and so intense. It is almost like we think talking in a circle is a matter of life or death. That's actually not a matter of life or death. We're just talking in a circle. 
Right. Because we're, we're actually not working with ER physicians, although we would. But, you know, like we don't like being human together doesn't have to be quite so high stakes. And there's another thing I'm going to call back to something you told me maybe 15 years ago. You, you were like, well, there's always going to be another conversation. Right. <laughs> There'll always be the next one. Right. So no single conversation is the final. Right. And that kind of takes the pressure off too. Yeah. We put all of our eggs Sorry, in that Brandon. basket. <laughs> yeah. like, okay, here it is. Let's solve it today. Here we go. 400 years of systematic racism. Let's solve it today about, you know, this issue of hiring. I'm sorry, Brandon, please. <laughs> what do you got? That's okay. Elon Musk is going to fix that. <laughs> oh, so many rabbit holes. Yeah. I, th there's like a, there's a phrase that you use Tuesday, like real difference that I, I kind of want to like hold. I, I think like something that was running through my head was, you know, I, I think like when we do approach like, grave conversations there's almost uh, a linkage you know to it being like painful or dreadful or, or just kind of something that uh it, it's carrying a lot of weight and i think for me like the question becomes like how do you you know sit with that sit with the weight but not let it define the conversation because i think a lot of times whatever the the kind of crossroad of, of a conflict might be you know it, it usually you know comes from perspectives not seeing each other like there's kind of like this um gap that that people are exploring but like how do we invite that in like how do we kind of reverse it and kind of use that as a, a launch point. You know, I'm, I'm inspired by the term, you know, from Adrienne Marie Brown, pleasure activism, you know, like how can we do what, you know, that kind of needs to be done, but not make it something that's grinding or, or kind of dreadful and that you don't want to do it um, because then we won't avoid it. You know, like how, how can we cultivate the opposite, I guess, is a, a simpler way to say it when it comes to these, you know, difficult conversations. Hmm. I'm interested how the two of you do that, you know, so we like, you know, Meg's got a couple of guitars in the background, the podcast listeners can't see it, you know, we'll often use, we often use theater work. We use, you know, we'll, we're playing music. We'll use, we'll use poetry. We'll lead grounding exercises with groups before we get into conversation. I'm just intrigued. Like what are you leaning on? Because you can talk about being joyful till the cows come home, but that doesn't actually create any joy in a room. Do you know what I mean? And so there's something about like what practices or what methodologies or approaches or even how you turn up yourselves maybe is a key part of that. How do you do that? How do you bring that joy in the midst of, you know, discourses that are grounded in multi-generational trauma, which is often the reality of conversations which have differences among them, you know? Yeah. How do we bring the joy? One of the astonishing things I learned was that I couldn't bring joy to groups until I really identified for myself what brought me joy. <laughs> so, I mean, and this sounds cliche, but a lot of this is an inside game. Like you've got to clear your own closets first of your, your own places where you feel conflicted, your own places where you have difference inside yourself that you can't reconcile. But in terms of joy, I mean, one opportunity we give the people we work with is to spend a little bit of time identifying what is joyful and fulfilling to them, which again is not an exercise most adults have the, the privilege of spending a few minutes thinking about. 
So I think it's important for whoever we work with to be able to define that joy for themselves. But in practical terms, all the things you said, you know, we, we had an offering at the beginning of the pandemic called Sanctuary Playground, where we invited people in different Zoom rooms doing dancing and collaborative art and photography and cooking. And I think the expression of it can come in so many different ways. We try to give people, you know, base the basic practices of grounding, of articulating how they feel. And when we can unlock that part, then they're typically excited to then begin discovering what brings them pleasure once they've actually figured out a little more about themselves, like, like they've, they've located themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I love that. And, and to, to kind of continue like the, the location process, I, I think like in some ways, like we were talking about, you know, the natural outside, how can we connect with like what's around us? You know, in, in some ways, like, you know, we have five major senses, you know, you hear smell, taste, touch, see <laughs> you know, and all of those things are like happening simultaneously like we're receiving like lots of information but like through that you know we're we're developing contact with you know certain sensations you know at the same time internally we're doing that similar process with our inner world uh, that, that people don't often see and it makes me wonder are there ways to kind of accelerate you know, how we show up, but also how we're seen. And I, I think like what you were talking about, Meg, like being embodied, you know, in that coming from that place of joy, it helps other people see that in themselves. And so like, there's almost like this resonance that happens, like when, when you're kind of in, you know, acting from that place that I, I really think helps other people feel courageous to feel seen, to feel like they can step in. Uh, that I, I think was really important. You know, we kind of have to act from where we want to be. Mm -hmm. There's a great, um, there's an old Welsh proverb, which is like a, a, an, an apple seed holds the orchard invisible, right? And it's like, and it's like what you're, that's what you're doing. You're just trying to go in and uh, the, the quote came to me when I was, it's like you're going in and like, just kind of like touching the seed in, in people and like nourishing it a little bit and seeing what, seeing what conditions might unlock it, you know, so they can discover, so people can discover the orchard invisible, you know, anyway, it just, it, 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 it struck me, struck me hearing you say that. Yeah. Yeah. And that I, I have to unlock my, I have to unlock myself. I have to touch the seed in myself first. Every time, every time I'm going to a client, I'm like, what brings me pleasure? Let me dance to that Beyonce song before I go into that Zoom room. That's my responsibility. If I want them to experience joy and pleasure, I have to be willing to meet it. I have to be able to meet it. And both of you, I think, are very excellent examples of that, that, that resonance building that Brandon was talking about. People will meet you at whatever level you come in on. So again, if, if I'm keeping my closet cleaner, I don't know, I'm mixing so many metaphors here, but if, if, if I'm... It, if I'm experiencing joy, if I'm spending the time to pause and articulate what will bring me the most pleasure and, and the most coherence, then I can be that example for the organizations that were inside. I love this conversation. And I was just yesterday looking at our own, the outside theory of change. We were kind of writing it up and looking at our principles of action for the outside. And, um, 
And I just, so I just pulled it up as you all were talking. And our, our third principle of action is model joy, humanity, and possibilities and active stance. And uh, Tim and I fought for that, actually. As we were looking at the principles, our theory of change team kind of kept dropping that one out. And we're like, uh, uh, no, 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 we got to put ha- joy in there someplace. We got to have fun. We got to have humor. You know, there's like, we have things, you know, um, you know, so we have practices under each of our principles that I that I won't share, but that that actually felt really important to Tim and I that this that we're doing this kind of change, deep, meaningful work, but we have to actually as a team, be bringing our joy to it, that that's like an active thing that we're modeling and stand and kind of standing for in the world, right? There's a lot of different ways to orient towards this work. And so, you know, you mentioned dancing to a Beyonce song before you get in a zoom room, but that just makes me want to ask you both what brings you joy? Like, what is it? How are you cultivating joy in your life? Like, you know, we've kind of been talking about like our work and outward, but I'm curious about the two of you and what you do to kind of actively cultivate joy in your life. Yeah. Great, great question. (laughs) I I think for me, there's something about finding small challenges, like not, not to kind of prove myself better than anyone else, but, you know, to prove that I can do something that I, I didn't think I could do. So like, Lately, for me, that has been a little bit of cycling. Like, I think, like a goal I have, you know, at some point in my life, <laughs> is to do like long distance cycling, like a like a century ride. And a, a lot of that, a lot of like my fear now uh, about cycling is just like what a hundred miles is is pretty far, you know, like. How how am I how am I gonna do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a long way, man. <laughs> yeah, but but maybe I don't have to think of it from that perspective. And if there's ways that I can see it as like a joyous, you know, occasion for me to an excuse for me to stop along the way and experience what's to to be seen in in different cities and towns, you know, then my perspective around it might change, which is something I'm working on. <laughs> I love it. I'm just going to like, just going to jump in really quick. I think I, I love that. And I want to tell you, I, well, eight years ago now, because it was for my 40th birthday, I uh, did an ultra marathon. And so that's any distance over a marathon distance. So I did 50K, which is pretty grueling. But I remember running down a hill around mile 17 and just like throwing my arms out. And I'm like, oh my God, this is how adults play, right? Like the momentum of the hill was like pulling me downward and I might trip any moment, but my arms were out. And and then at, at another mile, you had to like wade through a river. And I was like, this is it. Like there is something about pushing our bodies if if we can find the play in it that was absolutely almost ecstatic in the joy. And so just gonna like, put that little seed in your idea about a century bike ride that it could actually have moments of like just complete ecstatic joy. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, yeah, dancing for me is really big. And and one of the benefits of living in Los Angeles is that there's so much live music all the time. So one of the things that's really important for me is whether or not I have someone to go with to, to go see live music and, and really just dance it out, like dance the stress out. So that that's been wonderful. And then really just thinking about, you know, even having a chance to reflect on what we loved to do as children or what brought us joy, because a lot of the same things hold true. You can just update them. And yeah, I just, I want to bring that spirit to everyone that we work with because 
everything, I, I mean, we are in very serious times and I, I don't want to be sacrilegious or something, but I just think that sometimes even in our change work, we can, we can just hold it much more lightly. I mean, the thing that gives me the greatest joy is being able to work with friends who, yeah, who, who want to dance together and who want to pause together and who aren't satisfied with work in the present. They aren't satisfied. And so we're going to play out scenarios until we find something that feels better. So in some ways, like our whole, my work is now play. My work is now pleasure because we get to decide like, Ooh, what experiments do we want to run now? And that, that's been like the hugest gift to find colleagues that are willing to take that point of view and just say like, what, what if work was a game? What if this is all a game? And again, recognizing the privilege of that too, but um, in what ways might we take the pressure off ourselves and take some of that capitalist grind, <laughs> put that on pause a little bit. Spending time in nature. I think is one of the things that gives me, hence the outside, ridiculously. But like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, nature. I spend a lot of time in nature. I go there. I go there for respite. I go there for recourse. I go there for recovery. You know, I go there for inspiration. I go there for exercise. You know, so it's like a huge part of what I seek out in my life is time in and all different. You know, all different types of weathers and and so I think that's a big that's a big part of it for me. And the physical pushing is also part, often part of that, like, you know, getting up a hill or, the, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I think that's a big part of it. Listening to music is a huge thing for me. Like I listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot of music, you know. And then I play and write, play music and write poetry. And, and those are things that I do. And I do them kind of like for fun, spontaneously. I make things up. Like all the kids have got songs made up about them, you, you know, and uh, all the kids have had, all the kids have songs that I made for them specifically for their bedtimes. You, you know what I mean? When they were tiny kids, because I'm sitting there and they won't go to sleep. So I start making up songs and then one lasts, you know? So it's, it's, it's those kinds of things. It's that kind of like, uh, yeah. I think, I think my joy has a lot to do with spontaneity, you know, and a lot to do with nature, I would say. And then the other thing that gives me joy, you know, is being around things that feel hopeful. Mm. Well, you know, like uh, just this little soccer club we've started, you know, where it's like free soccer. We've got 200 kids in free soccer, you know, and it's like, and it's just wicked. You know, the atmosphere is great. Like, it's fun. People are turning up to play and all these wonderful connections happen between the parents and you, the growth in the confidence in the kids and that, you know, you're just around something that isn't actually overwhelming. You know, it's just hopeful to be part of, you know. And so I think I, you know, I, I seek that out. How about you, Choose? Well, a lot of what y'all have said, I just dancing is like a real, it's become a real practice for me, right? And it's not, I, I uh, dance alone in my room to music I like, often with my eyes closed. Like, I just think like, how can I move this energy through my body, this energy of joy through my body rather than what do I look like dancing or is that a cool dance move? I would never let anyone see it because I'm not even sure it would look like dancing to them. Right. But it is to me, right. It's just like, I just love to let the energy of <laughs> that joy or the music move through my body. So that's been a really big one um, lately. The outside, of course. I mean, like, I just like, I just live for these woods um, near where I live and like the changing of seasons and like, you know, like, um, you know, like just visiting certain trees there and certain spots there. Like, it just like makes me happy. 
in wild ways. I feel like I just like feel almost like sometimes wild with joy after I leave the woods, um, just because they're so awesome, right? And I've been going to these woods for 12 years now. And it's still like every time delights me, like, how is that even possible that I see a new tree when I've been going there, you know? So I just like, I think that's, that's, and you know what else I really like? I really, really, I know it sounds crazy because it is what joy, I love laughing. I love laughing. I look for opportunities to laugh. I look for people to laugh with. I like really dumb, silly, absurd humor. Absurdity makes me so happy. I can't say, like, I, you know, thank, like. Thank goodness. Thank God. Because I don't think we'd be friends if you didn't. You know, like. <laughs> yes, we live in an absurd time. Yeah, bring, it's like bring on the memes. Like, memes bring me enormous joy. <laughs> I mean, look, I my kids got me onto TikTok because they send me messages and my son went to college. And so he sends me messages that I don't understand at all. I'm like, I don't understand that video at all. But I have found my corner of TikTok, which is full of animals and moms and happy people doing great things. And then, uh, so I love that. Like I just, I, the, the creativity of people is endless. It's endless. People are so creative just in these little tiny videos or in Burning Man or I just, I just kind of feel amazed at the um, creative that like gives me joy, the creativity of people. But I also want to say like, cause I just think, cause we're talking about who we work with and how we work with, I mean, like truly Mr. Mary, like uh, he makes me laugh every single time we're together, every single time we're together. He says something ridiculous. I say something ridiculous. Today we talked about, like, we get each other's jokes, you know, even sometimes before the other team members do. And, like, we're off on this tangent and they're all just like, Before they ever do. I mean, it's just like, what are they talking about? Today, one of our team members goes, well, let's bring it back. Jim and I were just cracking up. Uh, So I think there's something for me around. I love to be around uh, smart but very silly people. That is part of what brings me joy. So... Yeah, thanks for asking. Silly to the front. Yeah, right on. Hey, you two, we're we're nearing the end of our of our time here, and you know, one of the things we often ask people when we get towards the end is, is there like a a quote or a poem or some lines from a song or something in general that you're just carrying around in your back pocket at the moment? Do you know what I mean? It's just like something you're resting on and. We've had people quote Kabir and we've had people quote their three-year-old child, you know, from that morning here in this section of the pod. But And so it, it shouldn't be something you have to dig long and deep for on your computer while I'm introducing it. But it's just like, is there anything you're just carrying around in your back pocket at the moment that just gives you the lift, that gives you the gives you something to lean on, you know, when you think about your work and your life and your, your family and your community? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's a really short quote from Rumi. Mm. That's what you seek is seeking you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Love that. And I think about it a lot. It gives me an enormous amount of comfort and reassurance. It almost makes me believe in magic. Like, mm. don't worry, the things that are for you are coming your way. And if my set point is pleasure, then that is what is seeking me. Mm. And that feels like, yeah, just feels incredibly reassuring. And it allows me to think, oh, my adjustment of what I am seeking changes the way the world responds to me. So, yeah, I really take comfort in that. Can you say the quote one more time, Meg, just by way of closing that? Just, I know it's very short, but just to hear you say it would be lovely. 
what you seek is seeking you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, a quote that I found once and then it's just rattled around in my head. But I, I kind of I found like another quote while I was looking for that quote. So I'm just going to say both of them. The first one <laughs> is to belong is to be present and to be present is to belong. And, and, it's, and it's both by the same person. But then the second one is a person is a knot in a net of relationships, which I, I really love. And it's, it's by a, a, a person named Raymond Panikar, which I think was like a, I think he was like a priest or something like that. But his writings around, you know, relationships are like quite moving. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. That's great. I'll have to look him up. I haven't heard of him. That's wonderful. It's great. Have you got a quote you're carrying around at the moment, Choose? Mm. Oh, wow. One you might just like throw in the soup here, you know, a little extra, little extra mm. ingredient in the pot before we wrap out. Stone soup. Right, stone soup. There we are. See, right, there we are. Well, you know, it's an old, like it's, it's an old, old one. And when it came to mind when you asked, I was like, that's weird. That doesn't, I don't know that that fits but I'm going to say it. So um, it, the, the quote goes, the world breaks everyone. Some become strong at the broken places. And, you know, I've always kind of seen it as a, as a real testimony, uh, beautiful way of viewing kind of trauma and resilience, right? It just feels like, you know, but as I said it today, I just thought it's kind of like, oh yeah, we all get broken. What are we going to do? Right. Like that's just like, you know, like at these times that are so hard and we're so afraid of being broken by these times, like, okay, let yourself break. And then you can become strong right there where you're broken. So it just feels, you know, like me 15 years after finding that quote feels like quite a different way of looking at it. So that's, I think it's a Hemingway quote. Mm. Nice. Yeah. We'll just play our way out of it. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, just let yourself play our way out of the broken parts. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, you're broken. Great. Let's, you know, like that's, that's all right. That happens. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do now? Mm -hmm. We'll take the pieces and make something else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How about you, Mary? Come on. Oh, well, you know what makes quote reminded me of one, um, uh, which was along the line of nature, which was, there's a fella called Martin Shaw, who's a kind of English mythologist that I've been uh, kind of following for a while, but he has this quote and, and it, I don't know why it, made me feel better about going out and walking nature and just like spending a lot of time looking at things. But he basically said, he said, uh, he said, nature seeks to be admired. Mm. You know, it's like, it seeks to be admired, you know, just like invites you, like, you know, to stop. And I love that. There's some permission giving in that, that I think is quite delicious. That's great. That's great. Well, speaking of delicious, it's been a total delight to have the two of you on the pod. Honestly, it's been mm -hmm. really lovely. I've loved the like tone and pacing and timbre of this pod today. It's just been, yeah, it's just been beautiful. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. This has been, yeah, it, delicious is the right word. It feels very alive and very glowy <laughs> <laughs> love it 
Thanks. And we'll, we'll put you up on, you know, like we'll put some of the resources that you gave on the show notes so people have access to them. We'll put these quotes up. Just so pleased to have you both. Thank you so, so much. Wicked. Thank you. We look forward to talking soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers. Take good care, folks.